like to have that passage open in Exodus chapter 15. And really our text this morning is verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, faithful in praises, doing wonders? I don't know how you are at the beginning of this new year. I don't know how you are doing spiritually. I don't know if some of you even know the Lord at all. We pray that you will. And we pray that even today, this might be the day when you trust Jesus for yourself. But there's a lovely hymn that I often read at the beginning of the year by a lady called Annie Johnson Flint. And this is what it says. I want to read it to you as we begin. I look not back. God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sinning, the regrets. I leave them with him who blots the record and graciously forgives and then forgets. I look not forward, God sees all the future, the road that short or long will lead me home. And he will face me with its every trial, and he will face with me its every trial, and bear for me the burdens that may come. But I look up into the face of Jesus, for there my heart can rest, my fears are still. And there is joy and love and light for darkness, and perfect peace, every hope fulfilled. We need, dear friends, to look to the Saviour, and we need to look to our God. And friends, I really believe that at the beginning of this year, and really for a while, one of the great troubles in the Church of Jesus Christ today is that there is such a low view of God. In fact, at worst, a totally unbiblical view of God. And that impacts everything. Because if you go wrong there, the consequences are devastating. Not just for individuals, but for churches. And I would suggest to you that we desperately need to recover a sight of the glory and the majesty of the Lord. A.W. Tozer wrote, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. You know, the doctrine of God is the most important doctrine of all. And, you know, it has been devastating to me to, to hear so many times recently, oh, well, it doesn't matter what we believe necessarily as long as we love Jesus. Friends, that is not what the Scriptures say. We need to have that understanding of who God is, how we can know him, what the gospel is. So much is claimed for the gospel that is not the gospel, not according to the word of God anyway. The being of God, the way we think of God, it determines everything about our lives in this world. More than everything else that the Bible teaches, it is important that you and I this morning have a right view of God. All the beauty, all the glory, all the excellence of this world around us, even at its best, is but a pale reflection of the glory and the beauty and the excellence which is in God himself. 
And if there is one ambition that every one of us should have more than any other, if we are believers, it is this, that we may come this year more and more perfectly in this life to understand who and what God is. And some of the things that we'll consider this morning, they are very deep and incredible. And we might struggle to understand, but our humble cry should be, Lord, give me eyes to see. Lord, give me ears to hear. Give me a heart that is ready to believe. And friends, I make no apology for making you think. Do you know, the world will tell you, and many Christians will tell you, to disengage your mind. That's not what we need to do. We need to think and think rightly and deeply on the great truths of God, and by God's grace then, to be led to worship. And Moses here is celebrating the victory of Israel over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. It's a great miracle. And Moses tells us that God had foretold this event about 500 years beforehand, and in Genesis 15, you can read that God revealed to Abraham that his seed, his children, meaning Israel, in the years to come will be in a land where their enemies would rule over them. And after 400 years, God says that he will judge that nation and he will bring his people out. And in this song of Moses, this song of praise, here it is recorded exactly as he said. And in Exodus 12, on that self-same day, on the very anniversary that the people were taken into Egypt, they came out. And so no wonder they sang this praise, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And you know, even in just those few words, we have a wonderful description of our God. And so I just want to draw a number of things out this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is this, the God who is unique. God is absolutely unique. There is nothing to which you can adequately compare God. When Moses says, who is like you, O Lord, he is telling us that God is infinitely above all beings, that he is infinitely better than all creatures put together. So we need to ask, well, who is the Lord? What is he like? Well, he's glorious. He is glorious. That's the first thing that Moses tells us. God is glorious in his essence, in his substance. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, the essence of God, the substance of God refers in that respect to the God who is one. You know, the Bible tells us in many places, for example, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is but one God in his essence, in his substance, his divine being. He is not divided as we are into a body and parts and passions. God isn't like that. He's not divided like that. He consists of one spirit. The Lord Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so when he speaks of the, the spirit in that sense, he is considering the, the essence of God. You say, well, how are we to understand that? Well, I want you to know, friends, that the Bible teaches that the essence of God is infinite. It is immense. It fills heaven and earth. God is everywhere present. There is nowhere in all existence where God is not. You cannot hide from him. He is infinitely present. 
present. The whole divine essence of God may be said to be filling all heaven, all earth. But not simply that, he is infinitely greater than all heaven and all earth. He transcends all heaven and all earth. So that the God who is said here to be glorious, is glorious not only in that he is in control of all things that happen, but he is infinitely greater than all. You know, in the scriptures, when they compare the universe to God, they say often that the universe is like the small dust of the balance. Like the woman measuring ingredients to make a loaf of bread or whatever, and a tiny speck of flour falls on the table accidentally, and the Bible says that the universe of sun and moon and stars, all the galaxies beyond what we can comprehend, are like that speck of flour, that speck of grain that has fallen off the scales in comparison with God. The whole universe compared with God is as nothing. So immense is God. He is everywhere present, present throughout the entire universe. As one explains, he is as much here as he is in heaven. He as much in hell as he is in heaven, but in different ways. In heaven, he is visible. Here, not visible. In hell, known as the God of terrible justice. In heaven, known as the God of infinite goodness, grace, and love. God is glorious. He is glorious in holiness. He is eternally blessed. Nothing changes concerning the essence of God. He doesn't have changing moods or uh, times in his experience when he is different from what he is at other times. We're so different. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day to day, we change. Good days, bad days. We're hard to predict at times. God isn't like that. He doesn't vary. There's no shadow of turning with him. And you know, you can never diminish his blessedness or his happiness or his perfect satisfaction with his own glory because God is unchangeably glorious in his essence, in his substance. That is the respect in which God is one. One of the greatest wonders imaginable is that this God who is one is also three persons. We refer to the three as his persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who is one in essence is three in persons, and the Bible clearly teaches the Trinity. And yet, really, for our limited minds, it's a great mystery. You know, we, we cannot, with all our efforts and attempts, fully grasp this wonderful reality. Rather, we just affirm the truth by faith. And one day in that great eternal glory to come, no doubt we will understand better, but we cannot take it all in. And so we refer to God in terms of the relationship of these three persons, the one to the other, and we must understand it like this. There is within the being of God what we call his internal works as well as his external works. Now, the external works, they're easy for us to understand, things like creation. But before God created the world, there was divine work essential to his being because he is the God that he is. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, we refer to these wonderful persons as the inter-Trinitarian relationship of the persons. So the Bible tells us that the Father eternally begets the Son, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. 
So they are one, they are distinctly three persons, and they are united. And so this is something which has no beginning, it will have no end, and I will believe that it will be the sublime glory of heaven that we shall see something of this unspeakable mystery. The great God who is one, also three in persons, equal in glory. And so there is this great mystery. Each is equally God. The Father possesses the whole divine essence. The Son possesses the entire divine essence. The Spirit also. Each person of the Godhead has the entire essence of God belonging to himself, and yet each is a distinct person. And you see at once our minds are blown. They're stuck. We cannot go further than that. We can only define it as the Scriptures do, state the reality, and believe it by faith. And the Scriptures show these things to be the internal works of God. Now let me just say, I was thinking over that, and I think there's a very real application about this God of whom Moses says he is glorious. You see, the Lord sets the standard for how we should think of one another if we're believers. How we should speak of one another as believers with consummate love and respect. Do you know, whatever the persons of the Godhead in Scripture refer to one another, they do so with the highest respect and love. When the Father speaks to or speaks of his Son, he speaks like this, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When the Lord Jesus refers to his Father, he says, my Father is greater than I. When the Lord Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, he says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Or again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me. And so what you see is the mutual love between the persons of this great and glorious God, it is so clear. They speak of the other with the utmost respect and perfect love. And friends, if we are those who claim to know God and love God and follow him, and we are part of a family of those who love God and know God through Christ and follow him, though we are imperfect, we should endeavor to be the same when we speak of our brothers and sisters in Christ with his own blood to speak with love and kindness and generosity and respect concerning the Lord's people. That's the pattern that we see even amongst the Trinity. Glorious. Glorious in holiness. And that really takes us not only from the uniqueness of God but secondly to the attributes of God. Moses says that God is glorious in holiness, in his essence, in his persons But this is true not just in who he is as God, but also his character. His attributes and the qualities of God are themselves utterly glorious. There are those attributes of God which are referred to as God's intellectual qualities. Again, so what do you mean? God has a perfect mind, if we can put it like that. He knows all things. He knows everything, and he knows everything to perfection. He knows all that was, all that is, all that will be. He forgets nothing except by a voluntary activity of his own will, whereby he chooses 
to forget the sins of those who repent of them and turn to Christ on the basis of Christ's saving work. However, he forgets nothing. Essentially, he knows everything all the time. He knows the end from the beginning, every moment, guiding all the universe to its end according to his sovereign purposes. His wisdom is absolutely perfect and he is always overruling to bring about the highest good in all that he is doing. And he will bring all his people to glory, to the highest glory, and he will make us to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And friends, you know what it tells us? Some of you here this morning maybe are living a double life. Maybe you're doing one thing on a Sunday and another thing through the rest of the week. God sees that. You can't fool him. And the wonderful thing is if we know him and our sin is dealt with, he will ensure that not a single one of those who are his can possibly be lost. He will make certain that all the enemies of the people of God will face his wrath and judgment. He will ensure that every one of those for whom Jesus died will get through this life to the glory to come. And that is because of the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God whereby he confounds all his enemies and he brings his purposes to pass so that no one can challenge what he does. He himself goes forward conquering and to conquer, always above circumstances, able to work through the very worst of circumstances to bring the best of things about. What's the greatest example of that? It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. God brought about the highest possible good through that awful event of the death of Christ. You know, we might look at the cross and we might see the, the, the awfulness of it. But God overruled, not only so, but he brought it about by means of his enemies. Those who executed the will of God in bringing about the, the death of Christ were those who hated God. They were his enemies, Satan, first of all, the powers of darkness, those who were hardened unbelievers in the days in which the Lord lived, his enemies, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all the rest, the very ones that God overrules to accomplish his purposes. Acts 2, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Christ was crucified and slain, the appointed way of salvation. It is this God whose mind and whose wisdom is so overarching all the circumstances that occur in this life that he overrules all evil for good for those who are his own people. That is his great wisdom. And then there are those things which we call the moral attributes of God and these are the most exquisite of all the highest of all being his justice and his love if we have a biblically right and balanced view of God we have to hold those two things together his justice and his love you see God is infinite in his justice infinite in his love that is why God cannot forgive sin without a right basis to do so you know, there are many believe, unbelievers when you speak to them maybe about the gospel and these things and they want to challenge God and say, well, you know, why doesn't God just forgive everyone's sin and just, just set it aside and, and wipe the slate clean? And the answer is because God is absolutely just. And his justice forbids that he should forgive sin except on a just basis. It would dishonor God if he were to forgive sin without there being grounds upon which he can justly forgive sin. And the way that we are to think of the justice and mercy of God is that God must 
punish sin, but he may forgive it. He may pardon it. He is obliged to punish evil, but he may, on the other hand, forgive it on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. He must punish the sins of those who don't trust in Christ because that is his own holy nature. And so, friend, you need to know this morning, if you are not in Christ, then your sin will be required of you in the punishment of that. You see, our sin is either punished and dealt with in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, or you will face eternal punishment. And even now, as you sat there, you know where you are with him. Either you are forgiven and in Christ, or you are not. You know, you think of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the sinless Savior, and willing to go to the cross to take upon himself the sin of his people and the wrath of God poured out upon him. And in Mark 14, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And that cup represented all his suffering for the sin of his people. The condemnation, the punishment that we should have drunk. And yet which he is our substitute drank for us. None other could do that work. None other could stand in our place. He is sinless. He did not deserve to suffer for the sins of others. And yet he willingly went to that cross. And mark this. Not even the sins of men when imputed to Christ could be so forgiven that he would not be made to suffer. Christ actually suffered. Romans 8. He did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. And here is the proof that God is so determined by his own character that he cannot forgive sin except on a just basis. And it is the wonder of his love that he himself has provided that basis. We must never see sin as a light thing. Sin is incredibly serious. And it demanded the greatest sacrifice that this world has ever seen. And this whole truth is totally offensive to unbelievers and increasingly to many so-called Bible teachers. And many argue if a God is a God of love, then surely he can forgive, but he cannot just forgive without denying his own holiness and justice. So what God has done in the wonder of his grace is in love he has provided that basis whereby he can be just and justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. That's the glory of the cross. That's why the cross is the most wonderful exhibition of the goodness of God and the love of God and the grace of God. Why would we want, not want to proclaim this in its fullness? There is a propitiation set forth which you and I can receive and believe in the moment that we do. All our sin is blotted out immediately. 1 John 4, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, the foolishness of the unbeliever, you know, many think, well, I'll be okay in the end, you know, I'll take my chances with God and I've lived a good life and I've gone on to church maybe or done other things and, you know, I'll take my chances. God will just accept me on the, the basis that I've done my best. Friend, when we have a right view of God, we see how desperate that is. 
how foolish it is. You know, God is so forbearing, full of patience and long-suffering, but only in this world. As soon as we pass from time to eternity, there is that reckoning that cannot be avoided. And so I ask you again, are you prepared for that? Are you in Christ this morning? You know, let me just mention something concerning the incredible patience of God. It is an attribute apart. It is distinct. It is different from the others in one vital way. All other attributes of God will be demonstrated in eternity as well as in time. In eternity to come, angels and much more redeemed sinners will worship and bless God for his goodness and for his mercy, sing his praise. In eternity to come, the church will eternally bless God for his love and his grace and his goodness. But as one of the Puritans writes, it is only in this life that there is such a thing as the patience of God. It is only in this life that long-suffering exists in God. It is something which is able to be exhibited before men only during the course of history. As soon as the curtain comes down and history comes to an end, all long-suffering is over, all the patience of God is finished. That is why God exhibits his patience so much now. That is why he glorifies his patience so much now. It is because once eternity comes, there will be no opportunity for that patience to be displayed. In eternity, there will only be eternal love for the redeemed and eternal justice for the wicked in their terrible state. And then that leads me on to the holiness of God. Glorious in holiness. The holiness of God is not just another attribute either. The attributes of God are such things as wisdom and power and sovereignty and justice and goodness, truthfulness, many others. But holiness belongs to all the attributes of God. You say, well, again, what do you mean? Everything about God is holy. His love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. That's why the seraphim veiled their faces before his holiness and cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Bible makes it clear that God is holy, holy in his essence, holy in his persons, holy in his attributes, in his works, everything. And if there is one truth that has been cast aside in our time, it is the holiness of God. Yet this is the very essence of the God of the Bible. We live in godless days. Godlessness pervades the land and increasingly the apparent church. There is disregard and disdain for any biblical idea of holiness. Holiness concerning God himself and holiness amongst the people of God. The tragedy is that this is the excellence of God. The excellence of genuine biblical Christianity it makes a holy people. As one explains, the importance of the gospel is not to make us filled with knowledge, although knowledge is good. The height of all true religion is to make holy men and women who are different from this world and are increasingly made like Jesus Christ. That's the whole function of preaching and of worship and of prayer meeting, the means of grace to make men and women like God to make them holy. What characterized the very best of our forefathers? It was their likeness to Jesus Christ, their holiness. You know, people would encounter a man like Robert Murray McShane and they would be struck by the difference about him. 
his Christ-likeness, they would see a man unlike others. Do they say that to me? They say it to you? Do they see that holy life? Do they see that marked difference from this world, that contrast with the world in that right sense? Do they see a markedly different character and life and being and demeanor because we are engaging with the holy God? Holiness, something otherworldly, something beautiful. Again, so much of what we see today, you know, holiness, oh, it's boring. You know, we want to be entertained, we want something that's, you know, holy, we don't want holiness. Oh, friend, holiness should mark the people of God. It's the thing about God which the sinner and the devil hates. You know, the sinner doesn't simply hate God for his power, although that is bad news for sinners. He doesn't simply hate God because God has authority and sovereignty, or, although all of that the sinner does hate. The thing which he most hates about God is that he is holy. And it cuts into the consciences of men and women, and they like to attack that. What did the demons cry out when Jesus came? What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before time? The very holiness of his person tormented them. They were in the presence of the Son of God. One preacher says, our error today is that we do not expect a converted man to be a transformed man. And as a result of this error, our churches are full of Christians who are so far from what the Bible teaches. A revival is, among other things, a return to the belief that real faith invariably produces holiness of heart and righteousness of life. Friends, as we finish, I want to quote Tozer to you again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we think of God, we must always balance his love with his justice. That's one of the great imbalances that is rife today. It fails to see the justice of God for what it is according to the Scriptures. That's where so many go astray. They're not making enough of the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And that's reflected in the way of worship, reflected in many aspects of their lives. And we are all affected and infected by it. We must always balance His love with His justice. Another dangerous imbalance, we can so emphasize the holiness and justice of God that we lose sight of his love. And maybe that's more of our danger that we need to be aware of. Something addressed in the Reformation by men like Martin Luther. When he was a young man teaching about God and about Christ in the church of that day, it was that God is terrible and God is severe and Jesus Christ comes with a sword and he's ready to kill people. A sword comes out of his mouth to slay the wicked. And they were terrified of Christ. Because that was their only impression of him. Terror and judgment and wrath and curse. And to find some refuge from this, they flew to those they set up as supposed interceders with Jesus on their behalf. And so they had to go to Mary or some other saint to try and get access to Jesus. The wonder of the gospel, dear friends, is that the moment we rest our hopes on Jesus, the wrath of God will never come upon us. Never. The moment we put our trust in the gospel, God ceases to be angry with us. 
There are no more judicial dealings with us in that sense. As soon as we put our trust in Christ, as soon as we are convicted of our sin, the anger is over as we come to Jesus Christ. You know, you think of those that came to Jesus in the Gospels and they were weeping and they'd been people of great uncleanness and great sinfulness. But as soon as they came to Christ and as they cried out and weeping over their sin, all was forgiven. That's the love of God. The intense, wonderful, infinite, glorious love of God. And so we've got to have this balance, his holiness and his justice, and yet his wonderful love. And the intimacy and the warmth that we can know him and walk with him. What a wonderful God we have. Uh, We should continually remind ourselves of what God has done for us. Cast all our cares upon him, all our worries, all our burdens, all our anxieties, to lay them upon him. And dear friends, he was looking after the world before you, before you and I were born. And he will go on looking after this world when you and I are buried in our graves, if it's his will. There is no need for us to bear the world's burdens on our shoulders were to live for his glory, consciously desiring to do everything to please him, seeking to do that which is right according to his word, that which is right in his sight. And as we begin this new year, my prayer for each one of you is that we would encounter, myself included, such a vision of God as portrayed in the word of his holiness and his glory that we bow in reverence and adoration at his supreme majesty, to realize that he is worthy of everything from us. You know, we want to be a local church to the glory of God, and we long that the Lord will sustain us for another year, led by his hand, directed by his word, sustained by his grace, but proclaiming the God of this word, the gospel of this word, because it is the only one that saves. And so, friends, may you know that enlarged view of God, and may you know him and him through Jesus Christ. Amen.